Thanks, worship team, for leading us so appropriately this morning. Songs definitely prepared us for the participation at the table of the Lord. We're thankful for that. As our three sons grew older, our family moved away from the practice of exchanging gifts at Christmas time. Marriages, and especially grandchildren, have brought that practice back into play. But one of the most memorable gifts that I can remember was when we were living in Burlington, Ontario. The two younger ones were were still in high school. I believe that Josiah was in his first year at university. The gift came in the form of an envelope. And inside the envelope was a certificate. And they opened it and discovered that the certificate was for a dinner with an etiquette coach. (laughs) I'm not sure how thrilled the guys were to get it, but mom and dad were excited about it. Cynthia and I had come to recognize because of our son's um, personal successes, they were finding themselves at a number of formal banquets and even associating with kind of the elite of society. And we really didn't want to, uh, well, we wanted to give them the tools so that they would would never find themselves in, in circumstances where they would feel embarrassed or intimidated by those kinds of formal settings. What's with all the spoons? Which bread plate is mine? You know, it's BMW. That's just a tip for you to remember. Bread is always on the left. M is the main plate. And water is always on the right. As it turned out, the coach was an absolutely delightful lady. We met her at an upscale restaurant. And she coached us through a seven-course meal. She connected with the guys and they had a great time. And looking back, I think Cynthia and I would say that it was worth every cent. We managed to build another memory with our family. And mom and dad learned some things in the process. Trust me. Today, it's not going to cost us a dime. But we're going to sit at the feet of the Apostle Paul as he performs as our etiquette coach. Not for some seven-course meal, but for the time that we spend at the Lord's Supper. So if you're taking a break, we are taking a break from the Gospel of John just for this week. And I have to admit that after reading Pauli Little's book, um, Know What You Believe, in preparation for the seminar tonight, the chapter dealing with the church, it jogged my memory, the commitment that I've made years ago about the Lord's Supper. And I had always said that if I was in a position to influence it, it would never be a tag-on at the very end of the service, but we would build services around this very special and memorable occasion. And so as elders, we want you to understand. We want you to be prepared to participate in the Lord's Supper with confidence. Corinth was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. In fact, calling someone a Corinthian in those days would would be a derogatory label. It would suggest they were immoral and unprincipled, even from a pagan's perspective. The Apostle Paul had visited this city on his second church planting expedition. A church had been established, but was not flourishing spiritually. In fact, Correcting the saints is a theme that has been suggested for 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. Believers in this church at Corinth were struggling to distance themselves from the culture and the practices, the pagan practices around them. They were asking the question, how much can we enjoy the things of the world without the world contaminating us? You know, that question is still being asked today, and it's the wrong question. 
First John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 reads, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It was the wrong question, and it's still being asked today. How much can I enjoy the things of this world without the world contaminating me? As a result, our, our faith becomes questionable. We have no assurance of salvation. We gather to worship in anemic churches. 1 Corinthians is as relevant today as it was in first century Palestine. Someone has written the church in Corinth was a mess. I count 15 distinguishable problems that Paul addresses in first Corinthians. And then he goes on to list them, 15 of them. Chuck Swindoll wrote the following in his introduction to the book of first Corinthians. In this letter to the church at Corinth, Paul covered a number of different issues related to both life and doctrine. Divisions and quarrels, sexual immorality, lawsuits among believers, marriage and singleness, freedom in Christ, order and worship, the significance of the Lord's Supper, and the right use of spiritual gifts. He also included a profound teaching on the resurrection. But this morning, we want to focus our attention on the significance of the Lord's Supper section of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 34. Let's turn there now. This passage will answer three questions. Why bother? What's the big deal? And now what? If you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. And I'd like to begin reading at verse 17, and I'll read through to the end of the the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For... In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are proved may be evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For for as often as you eat this bread and drink the, the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment on himself if he does not judge the body rightly. 
For this reason, many of you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our Father who is in heaven, you hear the prayers of your people, and you are capable and willing to supply all that is required so that we can live lives that please you, that bring you glory, that fulfill your plans and purposes, that indeed count for all eternity. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 asks a rhetorical question. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Thank you for your word, the inspired, infallible, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word of God. We get to hold it in our hands, read it, study it, memorize it, and admittedly, at times we take it for granted, dismiss it, ignore it, and even choose to disobey it. Forgive us, we pray. Would you help us to come with humble and teachable hearts this morning? It's no doubt a familiar passage of scripture for many of us. But may our familiarity not keep us from further understanding and appreciation. And as we participate in the Lord's Supper, may we behold the glory of the Lord so that we are transformed into his image from glory to glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord's Supper. Come to the table. Well, some of you may be familiar with Michael Card's song, Come to the Table. Come to the table and savor the sight, the wine and the bread that was broken, and all have been welcome to come if they might accept as their own these two tokens. The bread is his body, the wine is the blood, and the one who provides them is true. He freely offers, we freely receive. To accept and believe him is all we must do. Come to the table and taste of the glory and savor the sorrow, he's dying tomorrow. The hand that is breaking the bread will soon be broken. And here at the table sit those who have loved you. One is a traitor and one will deny, but he's lived his life for all of them and for all be crucified. Come to the table. He's prepared for you. The bread of forgiveness, the wine of release, come to the table and sit down beside him, the Savior. It's a great song. Why bother? Why should we accept this invitation to participate in the Lord's Supper? Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul begins by reviewing why we do what we do. The Apostle Paul's review of the inauguration of the Lord's Supper reinforces its importance. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Now in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, Begins like this. After these things, he left Athens 
and went to Corinth. Paul had been commissioned by the believers in the city of Antioch to go throughout the known world, to go abroad with the purpose of planting new churches and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with everyone and anyone who listened in all the places that he visited. He's on his second church planting expedition when he leaves Athens and heads down south into the city of Corinth. Verse 11 of the same chapter reads, And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Acts chapter 11, verse 8. And now we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that included in that teaching was how to participate at the table of the Lord or in the Lord's Supper. But how did Paul receive it from the Lord? The terminology used does not require a face-to-face transmission of information from Jesus directly to the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul could very well have sat with some of those men who had been there on that very night when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. In fact, all three synoptic gospel accounts include the report of the original event. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 30. In Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 24. And then again in Luke chapter 22, verses 19 to 20. Clearly, this historic event left an indelible mark on the minds of those who were there that night in the upper room on the night that Jesus sat around that table, celebrating the Passover meal. Actually, let's turn to Matthew chapter 26 and listen to his, what he recalls of that night, beginning at verse 26. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 26 of Matthew chapter 26. This is Matthew's account of what took place in the upper room that night. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The Apostle Paul wanted the Corinthians to be absolutely clear in their minds where this practice had begun. It was not with him. The Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus himself on the night that he was betrayed. Look at verses 23 through to 25. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he said, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, the new arrangement, the new agreement in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper is first and foremost a a memorial service, a time to remember. Reminders seem to be a familiar theme in the scripture. 
Remember, following the flood, God put a rainbow in the sky as a reminder. How about circumcision? It was a reminder that they were the people of God set apart. How about the festivals? And specifically, the Passover was commemorating God's miraculous deliverance from the Egyptian slavery. Remember when they entered, were entering the, the promised land for the very first time? The Jordan River parted, and they were to pick up 12 stones representing each of the tribes and pile them up on the west side of the Jordan River once everyone was crossed as a continual reminder so they would not forget their arriving in the promised land. And those are just a few. There are all kinds of, those kinds of examples scattered throughout the scriptures. And God knows that he is dealing with a forgetful people. We have short memories. In fact, that reminds me of a story of an elderly couple who'd been experiencing some declining memories. And so they decided to take a, a course on power memory classes. And the class taught them how to remember things by association, which tends to be a, a really effective way to remember things. I don't know whether you've tried it or not, but a few days after the classes, the old man was outside talking with his neighbor next door. And uh, they were chatting, and he was telling him how helpful this class had been. And uh, the neighbor said, what, what was the name of that instructor? And the uh, old guy, hmm. He pondered, and he said, you know that flower? That one that really smells good and has those prickly thorns on it? The neighbor says, well, you mean a, a rose? The old guy says, oh yeah, that's it, a rose. Then he turned toward the house and sh shouted, hey Rose, what was the name of that instructor? <laughs> oh boy, I laughed yesterday. <laughs> Listen, we don't have to be old to be forgetful. We all need reminders. And the Lord's Supper was intended to be a reminder of Jesus and his accomplishments. Now, TRCC, the Rock Community Church, believes that what is being taught here is this bread and juice represent the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that has typically been called a memorial approach to the Lord's Supper. Roman Catholics take it literally. The bread and the wine actually become the blood and body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, they, they believe that is only true when an authorized representative of the church, the priest, conducts the service properly. This is a transubstantiation view when the elements actually become the physical blood and body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there are those who see the bread and the wine containing the blood and body of Jesus Christ. It's the oh boy help me Wayne C-O-N Consubstantiation view Wow, can you believe how your tongue can get twisted? Consubstantiation view Jesus is really present though not physically present He is in around and under the elements. It's, it's a mystical kind of presence that Christ is involved. Historically, that's been the position of the Lutheran church. Now, finally, there are those who see the bread and the wine containing the body and blood of Christ in a spiritual sense. The Lord's Supper 
or when we come to the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit brings participants into a closer connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. I suppose it's like when you connect your Fitbit to the plug it in so that it recharges. This would recharge us spiritually by participating in the table of the Lord. This would be seen as the the reformed view. And the Presbyterian Church would, would kind of see these elements as spiritually containing the uh, blood and body of Christ. And we do, we do see this, like this can be a spiritually renewing opportunity for us as we come and participate in the table of the Lord. We would see, but we don't see it any more possible than when you are engaging in any of the spiritual disciplines. So as you sit at home and you, you read God's word, there too you can, can, so there's nothing special about this table of the Lord in that sense. There's been a lot of time spent on, is it a sacrament or an ordinance? And I have to admit that over the years, I think that, that the, the clarity with those two terms has, they become closer, more synonymous than ever before. But when I was taught, the sacrament would see this table of the Lord as being a conduit or a channel for God's grace that he's pouring into his people. An ordinance sees it more as something that has been instituted by Christ himself, commanded by him, and we're coming as an act of obedience and worship. I hope that's helpful. So, again, TRCC sees two ordinances that Jesus Christ himself established for the New Testament church. One is baptism, the other is the Lord's Supper. There are other Protestant groups would, which would add foot washing to, to that as an ordinance. And we've talked about that when we dealt with, with that passage in John earlier. Let's move on. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Not only is it a reminder, but it is also a proclamation. Remember TRCC's strategy? Celebrate, demonstrate, and proclaim the gospel. The Lord's Supper presents us with a clear opportunity to do just that. Collectively, as a localized expression of the body of Christ, we come and we proclaim. The Lord's Supper was a proclamation of the Lord's death. And that is the gospel. And don't miss that last phrase, until he comes. We've just completed our study of John chapter 14. And you'll remember that Jesus was dealing with his disciples with troubled hearts in John chapter 14, verse 1. Verse 3 reads, If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be, may be also. We've talked about it, the hope of heaven. Coming again, coming again. Maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, maybe soon. Coming again, coming again. Oh, what a wonderful day it will be. Jesus is coming again. The Lord's Supper was to be repeated until he comes again. What are the inferences of these verses? What is implied here? What, what difference does it make to you and I? I've come up with three of them in keeping with our three-pronged approach to sharing the gospel. Celebration, demonstration, and proclamation. The Lord's Supper is an important celebration. The Lord's Supper is primarily, but not exclusively, 
a time for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation to recall and reflect on a number of things. Who Jesus was, God dressed in human flesh, his life and his ministry, and what that life and ministry means for you and I. In other words, his accomplishments on our behalf, and and not only ours, but for the whole world. Do this in remembrance of me. It's also to anticipate his return. Constant reminder that he's coming again. Until I come, there's lots to celebrate. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is an important demonstration. This remembrance is commanded. And therefore, genuine believers will not consider participation at the Lord's Supper an optional activity. It's impossible for you and I, as genuine believers, to live an obedient Christian life without participating in the Lord's Supper. It's a public display of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. We come in an act of humble obedience. We participate not because we have to, but because we want to, because we love him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John chapter 14, verse 21. Provides us with an opportunity to demonstrate in a real practical way how much we love the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper is an important proclamation in two ways. It is a personal and tangible acknowledgement of our complete dependence on Christ. He is the vine, we are the branches, and apart from him, you can do nothing. John chapter 15. It's not enough for me to stand up here on the second Sunday of every month and say, remember, that's not enough. No way. The physical act of eating and drinking the elements reminds us that our encounter with Christ is personal and we are completely dependent on him to sustain us spiritually. As dependent as we are on food and drink to sustain us physically. And then it's a personal proclamation, but it is not private. It is a public identification with Jesus Christ and with his people, the people of God. And that is why we bother. That's why we do what we do. And that's why we ought to prepare to participate in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, come to the table. Well, come to the table and savor the sight the wine and the bread that was broken. And all have been welcome to come if they might, except as their own, these two tokens. The bread is his body, the wine is the blood. The one who provides them is true. He freely offers, we freely receive. To accept and believe him is all we must do. Come to the table and taste of his glory. Question number two. So what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Well, as we read on, the Apostle Paul seems to make it quite a big deal. Look at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. The Apostle Paul warned them that to participate in an unworthy manner 
in the Lord's Supper makes them guilty. But what would an unworthy manner look like? What is that? How could you and I come and participate in an unworthy manner? That would be anything that undermines or distracts from the significance of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. Anything. And I'm not suggesting that every one of us need to come to the table with a, a full grasp of the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. That would be an impossible prerequisite. But even a child can be taught and learn the seriousness of this occasion. It's to be a, it's to be a somber event. I didn't say a, I, I should say a sober event, a sobering event, not a somber event. This is not a funeral service. But we don't come flippantly or casually or thoughtlessly. This isn't a, a time of entertainment. That would be, be, that would be coming in an unworthy manner. And certainly if the Corinthians these Corinthians were not prepared to respond appropriately to the issues that the Apostle Paul has already raised in this first letter. Divisions and quarrels, sexual immorality, lawsuits among believers, etc., etc. If they're going to dig their heels in, and refuse to repent and change those unacceptable behaviors, then that would be participating at the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And not that we have to be perfect or, or somehow sinless to come to this table, but refusing to be broken by our sin, justifying it, blaming others for it, that would be participating in an unworthy manner. Gene Peterson, in his interpretive translation, uses the word irreverently. If that is our approach to the Lord's Supper, irreverence, then we're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And what does that mean, to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Does that mean somehow that we're held responsible for Jesus' physical death? Not at all. Not any more than we already are. After all, he, he died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. But what it does mean is that you are guilty of eating the bread and the wine in an unworthy manner. Participating in an unworthy manner, it incurs guilt. You're guilty. Notice verse 28. But, that's the contrast we're looking for. Rather than participating in an unworthy manner and incurring guilt, verse 28, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now that's pretty straightforward. Can I just say that self-examination does not mean beating yourself up? Let's be honest, none of us in this room today are worthy to come and participate in the Lord's Supper apart from what Christ has done for each one of us. The Apostle Paul is asking us to examine our attitudes 
as we approach this significant act of worship? Are we coming in a, in a worthy manner, respectfully, recognizing that you are not worthy is probably a good place to start. But is my, is my head in the game? Or am I distracted by all kinds of things? Thinking about everything else under the sun. Or am I just, just going through the motions because this is what we do on the second Sunday of every month. This is my body. This is my blood. Focus. And if you're not in that place, then start right now preparing your heart, examining yourself so that you can get to that place of remembering and proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Self-examination ensures proper participation, that we will participate in a worthy manner. Self-examination will do that. The Apostle Paul goes on to flesh out some of the potential case of the Corinthians, the, the actual consequences for those who fail to heed this warning and insist on participating in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Look at verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Did you notice that? Participating in an unworthy manner invites God's discipline. Verse 30 speaks of the kind of discipline the Corinthians were actually experiencing. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. In other words, they've died as a result of participating in an unworthy manner. And this is not referring to some kind of eternal condemnation reserved for those who refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But God does discipline those he loves. Turn with me to Hebrews for just a moment. Book of Hebrews, chapter 12, beginning at verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he, whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. But if you are without discipline, which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as the as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems, to be, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, 
afterwards it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. Does God enjoy disciplining us? Absolutely not. But to withhold discipline would be the result of either a lack of love, doesn't really love us, a fear of man, he wants man's approval and he wants men to like him, or just plain laziness. But instead, God disciplines us for our betterment so that we may share in his holiness, verse 10. Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, verse 11. So what are the inferences from this section of Scripture? Let me suggest just three for your consideration. Number one, participating at the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner is unacceptable and inappropriate. We need to heed the Apostle Paul's warning here in these verses, realizing that if we are not going to heed the warning, we are inviting God to discipline us. Number two, participating in the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner is possible. We can come to the table with confidence, knowing that we are participating in a worthy manner. That has to be encouraging. And finally, the Lord's Supper is accessible to every believer, every single one of us who are trusting Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. This table is accessible. The Lord's Supper, come to the table. Well, come to the table in a worthy manner and savor the sight, the wine and the bread that was broken. All have been welcome to come if they might, except as their own, these two tokens. The bread is his body, the wine is the blood. And the one who provides them is true. He freely offers, we freely receive. To accept and believe is all we must do. Come to the table in a worthy manner and taste of the glory. So now what? Or what now? Well, look at verses 33 and 34. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. The Apostle Paul encouraged them to participate at the Lord's Supper properly. Come together. Come together. Table of the Lord is never a solo flight. It was intended to be a collective experiences. This one of one of these occasions where we are invited to participate in a way that displays the oneness that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we place our trust in him as the perfect sacrifice that paid the penalty for our sin, we become part of the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. Look across the page at chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians. Notice verse 12. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one body. So it is with the body of Christ. Another metaphor. And then verse 27 of the same chapter. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is part of it. Come together. Secondly, wait for one another. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And I'll read it from the message. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. 
Don't push your way to the front. Reminds me of the food lines at Briarcrest. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting to your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. And when it comes to participating at the Lord's Supper, wait for one another. Come together, participate together. Thirdly, eat at home. Eat at home. It's not a meal for our bellies, but a meal for our hearts. When the elders decided to test drive the soup and bun lunches following the services on Sundays in which we celebrate the Lord's Supper, typically the second Sunday of every month, the intention was to give us some extra face time with one another so that we can build relationships with each other. That's why we named it Soup and Bun Fellowships, not all-you-can-eat soup and bun lunch. <laughs> Building relationships, we recognize, requires time and proximity. Otherwise, we become like two ships passing in the night, never connecting with one another. The Soup and Bun Fellowships like the Lord's Supper, serve a higher purpose. The one is to build relationships with each other. The other was primarily to renew and revive and nourish us spiritually. The inference from this section of these verses, in verses 33 and 34, there's just one. Participate. And do it right. Or don't do it at all. It's not really an option. It's not an option. The Lord's Supper. Come to the table. Bruce Bramer is a fellow elder here at the TRCC, and I'm going to invite Bruce, come now please and lead us in this meal.